If you've got your message notes, I want to invite you to pull those out. We're in a very different type of Christmas series this year called Come to Worship, and it's all about what would it look like this Christmas if we made Jesus the center of it all. Now, I know that sounds cliche, and and you think, well, that's what you're supposed to say. You're a pastor. You're supposed to remind us that it's all about Jesus, but honestly, what would it look like? like? Like, really, what would your Christmas be like if Jesus really was the focus, if Jesus really was the center, if it really was all about him and worshiping him, how much better could it be? Because I don't know about you, but it seems like every year we put so much energy and so much you know, passion and thought into this one day out of the year that, that every year, the day after Christmas always feels like a letdown. It always feels a little bit empty. It always feels like that was it. It's over. We put all of this energy into this one day, and it just did not live up to the hype. And what would it be like this year if in the middle of all of it, you made Jesus the centerpiece? Because I'm not against all of the traditional stuff. Like I love the, the Christmas cookie contest and, and sugar and, and presents and sugar and more sugar and dessert and all of you know the, 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 the tree and the lights, all of that and the sugar. And, and I love it all. But honestly, what would it be like if Jesus really was the center? Because here's the thing, no matter what you're going through right now, you could be going through the very worst time of your life right now. You could be dealing with a health crisis, a financial crisis, a career crisis, family crisis, marriage crisis. But when Jesus is at the center of it all, he makes everything better. So you could be having the worst circumstances of your life and actually experience the greatest Christmas of your life if it's all about Jesus. And the good news is even if everything's going really well right now, he makes it better. Like you'll enjoy all the traditional elements of Christmas so much more when it really is all about him. And I'm for all of it. Like we give presents to our boys and and the tree and the lights, and we love all of that stuff. But when it's about Jesus, it is so much more meaningful. So we're looking at who he is and what he did and what does it mean to truly worship him. Last week, we looked at a very important part of biblical worship that we see all throughout the Bible. It's actually, you know, may may sound a little bit strange at first to some, but all throughout the Bible, we see that one of the ways we worship God is we actually lift our hands during worship. We lift our hands as we sing. We lift our hands as we pray. We, we, We literally and physically lift our hands to God. Because the truth is, our hands are reflective of what's going on inside of our heart. There's a direct connection between our hands and our heart. And you see it in science, and you see it throughout Scripture, and you see it in your spiritual life. Somebody emailed me an article after last week's message about the Special Olympics, that after the judo competition in the Special Olympics, the guy who won the judo contest, as soon as he won, he lifted his hands in victory, which doesn't sound that strange, because that's what we do in sports, right? except for the fact that this guy was blind. So he had never seen anybody do that before. It wasn't learned behavior. He didn't raise his hands because he saw other people raise his hands because he'd never seen it before. It was just the expression that came out because of what was taking place in his heart. And the whole article was the science behind how it's almost like a genetic code that our hands really are reflective of our heart. And it's one of the reasons why we lift our hands to God in worship and when we sing And when we pray next week, we're going to look at pouring out our heart before God. And then on Christmas Eve will be part four of the series, which is all about what does it mean to bow 
our knees to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, to bow down before Jesus. Today, we're going to look at a very important part of the Christmas story. In fact, there is no Christmas story without today's act of worship because it's an act that God displayed first, and then we see it again in the Christmas story, and it's all about bringing gifts. Because how many know Christmas is all about gifts? We give gifts to each other, we receive gifts, we exchange gifts, that there really is no Christmas without the giving of gifts because Christmas itself is God giving mankind the greatest gift ever on Christmas, which is the gift of his son, Jesus. So let's jump into the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, which which is a very important detail because it means this is a very difficult, very tumultuous, very uh, just, just a crazy time to live in Israel was during the time of King Herod. Magi from the east. Magi is the word for wise men. It's where we get wise men. They were from kind of Babylon, uh, uh, modern day Iraq, Iran, that whole area of the world. We believe they came because of the prophecies of Daniel. Daniel was exiled in Babylon. Daniel was a prophet who told about the coming Messiah. And so when they saw the star in the sky, they remembered the prophecies of Daniel and said, this must symbolize or signify that the actual Son of God is being born on earth. It says the Magi from the east came. Now let me ask you a quick question about the Christmas story. How many wise men were there? Do you you remember how many wise men were in the Christmas story? Three, three, right. No, that's actually wrong. The Bible doesn't say three. Now, here's one of the things I want you to learn how to do when you read the Bible, because a lot of us read the Bible with our cultural understanding, or we read into the Bible as opposed to reading the Bible. And so often we read things that are not even there because they're tradition, because we just grew up hearing it for so long that we actually think it's true, even though the Bible doesn't say it. The truth is we have no idea how many wise men there actually are. The earliest tradition Eastern tradition from the time of 2nd, 3rd, 4th century from the Middle East is there was about 12 wise men, and which would make a lot more sense because they're traveling over 900 miles. It's very dangerous. It's very, you need a group of people that you travel with for safety, safety in numbers. And so it makes more sense to me that there would be 12 or more. Three probably would have not have survived the trip on their own. Now we get three because there were three gifts. And so that's a modern Western interpretation, but The original Eastern thought on the story was there were 12 or more wise men that made the journey. Just saying, there there are a number of things in the Christmas story that if you read the story without ever watching the Christmas pageant growing up, and I don't mean to ruin it for your kids right now, but if you read this story without ever watching the Christmas pageant going up, you'll realize that a lot of things you just read in the Bible aren't actually in the Christmas pageant, that that a lot of it is, is kind of made up that's not actually in Scripture. Where... So they asked King Herod, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Not a good question, asked Herod. Herod was paranoid. Herod was brutal. Herod killed anyone that had a claim to the throne. He killed two of his sons. He killed a wife. He killed everybody from the Hasmonean line. Anyone that thought it could be any type of competition to the throne, he had them killed. And in fact, he goes on later in chapter 2 to kill every baby in Bethlehem under the age of 2. Every baby boy in Bethlehem under the age of 2 just to make sure he got rid of any claim to the throne because he was paranoid. He was crazy. He was just a brutal, brutal person. So not a good question to ask Herod. Where is this, this baby born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose 
Now, here's the right approach to Christmas, and this is what I want to teach you this year. If we can learn to approach Christmas the way these wise men approach Christmas, we'll have the most meaningful Christmas of our life. We have come to worship Him. What would it look like this year if Christmas was all about worshiping Him? What would it look like if if, if we could honestly say, this Christmas, we have come to worship Him? It's all about Jesus. Now, Herod being paranoid goes on to tell the wise men, when you find him, tell me, because he's trying to trick him so that I can go worship him too. He didn't want to worship Jesus. He wanted to kill Jesus. He wanted to kill anyone that had any, any type of claim to his throne. But God told the wise men, don't go back to Herod and tell him that you found him. Go a different way. And drop down to verse 9. It says, after they had heard the king, so they just got done talking to the king. He said, if you find him, tell me so I can come and worship him. They went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now, I love this next phrase. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. That's what the NIV Bible says. What's amazing is this word overjoy in the actual Greek language, because our our New Testament was written in the original Greek language. We have an English translation. This word right here, overjoyed, is for different Greek words. That's how big the word is. The New American Standard actually translates all four words for us. It says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were overjoyed. Like, here's joy. They were overjoyed. They they were so excited. They were overjoyed. The problem in Christianity today is we have a lot of people who are not overjoyed. We have a lot of people who are underjoyed. Like they, they are, have you ever have you ever met Christians who are underjoyed? You can see it on their face. Like there's no joy on the face. They just sit there with blank faces, never any real happiness, never any real joy. One of the reasons is because the gospel really hasn't gone from their head to their heart. Because when you really get what Jesus has done on your behalf, you hear the good news of the gospel. It creates joy in your life. This is actually when you when you study it, it's what sets Christianity apart from religion. Now, I know there are a lot of people that take in Christianity and turn it into a religion, but Christianity in its essence, Jesus called it a gospel, meaning this is the exact opposite of religion. Here's the difference. Religion at its very best is good advice. Gospel is good news. How many know good advice and good news are radically different? Good advice is here's how you should live your life. Here's how you can be a better person. Here's how you can be a better parent. Here's how you can be a better spouse, better worker. Here's how you can improve things. If you just follow this and follow that, this is how you can make your life better. That's good advice. That's religion at its best. Gospel is good news. Here's what God did for you. You see, religion is what we do for God. Gospel is what God has done for us. One of them produces joy. See, when you live your life based on what you have to do for God, you're never going to find real joy because you're never going to feel like you're doing good enough. That's why we don't follow a religion. We follow a gospel. We follow a gospel based on what God did on our behalf, which creates great joy in our life. So if you ever see one of those Christians who who claim to be a Christian and they don't have the the joy, just just tell them to tell their face. Tell them to remind your face what Jesus has done on your behalf. Like, like show it on your face, because it helps. It makes a difference. I'm, I'm telling you right now, uh, sometimes when, when, you don't, when you're underjoyed, you do more for other religions than you actually do for Christianity. Like, you go around, come to Jesus. He'll change your life the way he changed my life. People are looking at you like, if Jesus did that to you, keep him away from me, because I don't know if I want that. 
That doesn't look good. Like we, we need to be overjoyed as Christians. When was the last time you were overjoyed? Like when was the last time you, you like this is joy, you were up here. Like you were overjoyed. I remember one of the times recently I was overjoyed is when the Dodgers made the World Series. Finally, after years, we finally went back to the World Series. And then I lost my joy really quickly because they didn't go anywhere once they got there. They just kind of fell apart once they made it. You know, overjoyed. Some of you would be overjoyed if the pot, well, maybe that's not really a reality for you, so I shouldn't even go there because I don't think the Padres will ever make the World Series. So we'll just move on for the Padre fans. The Dodgers, though, they at least have a chance from time to time. The wise men were overjoyed. They were overjoyed to meet the baby. And this is after traveling 900 miles. I mean, think about this. They're traveling. It's, it's like if we traveled by foot or, or on camel from San Diego all the way up to Portland, Oregon, that was the distance that these wise men had to travel. So this wasn't easy for them. This was a difficult journey. And it says they were overjoyed to do it. They were overjoyed to meet this, this baby that they believed to be the actual son of God. It says on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down. That's what we're going to look at on Christmas Eve. And they worshiped him. Now, how did they worship him? How did, well, there's many ways they worship, but one of the key ways it goes on to say, then they opened their treasure and they presented him with gifts. They worshiped him with gifts, very expensive, very costly gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and they were overjoyed to do it. They were overjoyed. They, they, they were so, there was joy. They were overjoyed. They worshiped him. They gave him gifts. It cost them, and let me say it like this, they were not upset to have to give to Jesus. They, they were not upset about this at all. They were overjoyed about it. They, they loved being able to do this. It wasn't something they dreaded. It was like, oh, now we got to give to Jesus. So here we go. We're going to take this long trip and take a whole bunch of stuff that cost us a lot of money. And we worked for this stuff and it was very expensive. And now we got to go give it to some Jewish baby that we don't even know. No, no. They were overjoyed to come and worship. They were overjoyed. To... Let me show you what overjoy looks like. If you were here yesterday, you got to experience it with me. Walking around, our dream team was overjoyed about giving. They were overjoyed about serving families and serving kids and wrapping presents and shopping with people. Even the golf cart guy, Paul, was overjoyed <laughs> to drive the golf cart around and just love on people. It was like it was Santa in his sleigh driving families with bags full of toys to their cars. There was, and, and you walk up to people yesterday, and you just say, hey, I want to thank you for serving today. Thank you for being here. They would look at you like, no, 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 thank you. Like, we're, we're happy to be here. We're excited to be here. This is our joy to get to serve. So what I want to do today is I want to help you get to the place where you can learn to love giving to God where you learn that to love generosity. You, you learn to be overjoyed about worshiping by bringing gifts. Three questions to, to analyze in your heart today. First one is, am I overjoyed to give? Like, do I get fired up every time I get an opportunity to give? Or do I get fired up every time there's an opportunity for generosity? Am I overjoyed to be able to give? How many of you have ever given something that you could not wait to give? Like, like this happens to me every Christmas. Like right now, there are presents 
hidden in my house that I can't wait to give. And, and this is a struggle for me every Christmas because like, I, I want to blow it. Like, I want to give it to them early because I know how much they're going to love it. I know how much it's going to mean to them. And, and, and I don't want to wait for Christmas. I want to see the look in their face. I want to see them open it now. And, and it's a struggle for me to wait because I'm so excited. I'm so overjoyed about giving the gift because of how much I love the person in my life, whether it's my son or my wife, that so, so typically for me, I blow it at least once during December. Like, like at least once during December, I can't wait. I can't make it to Christmas. And I give them one of their gifts early. And then I got to go out and buy something else and put it under the tree to replace what I just did because I'm, I'm overjoyed to be able to give. The wise men, they came to worship him, the baby, Jesus, the king. And they were overjoyed to bring gifts. And the gifts they brought weren't just in any gifts. It was actually protocol for a king who is divine or who is deity. We, we have recorded history, 243 BC, when King Seleucus offered to the god Apollo in the temple Miletus three gifts. Do you know what those three gifts were? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, 240 years before the birth of Christ. These were gifts that was protocol for a king, protocol for somebody they believed to be divine. They believed to be the son of God. Even a thousand years before Jesus was born, it was prophesied in Isaiah that people from Sheba, that was the area where the wise men came from, would bring gold and frankincense and would bear good news of the praises of the Lord. Now, why these three gifts? Well, they were prophetic. This is what's interesting to me. Even though throughout history they were offered to, to idols and false gods and pagan gods like Apollo, they were always prophetic pointing towards Jesus. Because you've got three gifts. You have gold. Gold represents king. Gold was a gift that you gave a king. Jesus was the king of kings. Frankincense was an incense or a perfume that you burned during temple worship. Frankincense was a gift for a priest. Jesus is our high priest. He's sitting at the right hand of God on our behalf forever making intercession for us. And then you have myrrh. Myrrh is what they would anoint a body with for burial. When you would bury somebody, you would cover their body with myrrh to send them into the afterlife. It was prophetic of his death. So it's very interesting to me that these three gifts symbolize that Jesus would be king, that Jesus would be priest, and that Jesus would die given to a baby. You see, we bring gifts as an act of worship throughout history. There's no giving to God without it being an act of worship. In fact, in the Bible itself, Every time they worshiped God in the Bible, there was always the giving of offerings. Offerings were always a part of worship. And look, I'm not naive. I know that anytime you teach on giving, especially during the holidays, there are many people who don't like messages on giving. Like we got bills, we got presents to buy, we got you know, all sorts of stuff going on. Like why do a giving message in December? The truth is there is no Christmas story without giving. Like the Christmas story is filled with giving. It's what it's all about. It's why we give and receive on Christmas. And the truth is, generous people, givers, love messages on giving because it stirs their heart because they've experienced the joy of it. Paul puts it like this. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 in the New Testament, Paul says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly. Now he's talking about agricultural 
terms and he's making it symbolic to giving, to being generous. He says, whoever gives sparingly will reap sparingly, but whoever sows or gives generously will reap or it'll come back to you generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. And again, this is the way we practice our legacy offering as a church. This is why we give you plenty of time to pray, because we believe that everybody should give whatever they decide in their heart to give. And the general rule of thumb is do it where it's not reluctant and it's not under compulsion. So if you feel reluctant, like I really don't want to give this to God, don't. Don't give it to God. If you don't want to give it to God, don't give it to God. If you feel compelled or manipulated, it's better if you don't give and you don't participate. And here's why. God loves a cheerful giver. God is looking for people who are overjoyed to give. People that are above joy. People that have a humongous amount of joy every time they get an opportunity to be generous. Every time they get an opportunity to give. God is just looking. God loves it. God's heart just moves to people who are just cheerful about giving and overjoyed about giving. So the question we ask is, am I overjoyed to give? And the reason why I ask you the question is because God loves a cheerful giver. God is looking for cheerful givers. God has a heart to people who are cheerful about generosity. And I love what Paul goes on to say. So so Paul just gets done saying, God God just loves cheerful givers. God, God loves people who are over joyed about giving. And then look what he says next. And God is able. God is able to bless you abundantly. See, God is just looking for someone who loves to give. God is looking for people who are overjoyed about giving. God is looking for cheerful givers because he's able to bless those people abundantly so that in all things and at all times, having all that they need, they will be able to abound in every good That's what we saw yesterday. We saw people who've been blessed, able to abound in every good work and buy toys and buy presents to give to children that they've never met, that they don't even know because it's part of the good work that God has called them to be in. And I love that. I love the fact that God is looking for cheerful givers, that God is looking for people overjoyed about giving so that he can bless them abundantly. Sign me up because there are a lot of good things that God has put on my heart to do, but I'm going to need his blessing in my life to accomplish everything that he wants me to do for other people. And again, I don't know about you, but this, this, this very verse is one of the reasons why I love participating in the legacy offering. It gives me a chance Every year in the middle of Christmas, in the middle of a a holiday season that Satan has tried to to rob from Jesus and turn it into the most materialistic, the most self, we're in the middle of the holiday season, I can say, Jesus, yeah, I'm going to bless my family. I'm going to do a lot for people, but you're going to get the biggest Christmas gift from me. Like you're going to, you are first in my life and I am overjoyed to do it. Here's the second question we ask as we learn to become generous people. Do I love to give? First is, do I have joy in giving? The second is, do I love to give? Do I love to give even when I'm not supposed to give? Have you ever been in a situation where you're not allowed to give and you give anyways because you love giving? Like, how many of you are married? We married people do this a lot. Married people, we say to each other every Christmas, don't buy me anything. I won't buy you anything. Let's just focus on the kids. And what do we do? We go out and sneak around them and buy them something anyways, 
right? Like, 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 I don't know how many times my wife and I have said that. Let's not get each other anything for Christmas this year. We don't need anything. I don't need anything. You don't need anything. Let's not get, and, and we still do. Why? Because we love to give. We love to give. Giving feels good. Giving is fun. Jesus actually says, when you give, you are blessed. And the word blessed that Jesus says is the word happy. So you're actually happier when you're giving than when you're receiving. And so we love to give. We love to give even when we're not supposed to. Love is a motivating factor. Look at, look at this in John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world. So God loved you and God loved me and God loved the entire world. What did love cause God to do? God so loved the world that he gave. This is what Christmas is all about. God gave his son, born in a manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Why? Because God loved. God loved, God gave. God loved, God gave. It's impossible to love without giving. It's, do you hear me? It's impossible to love, like, think about it. You can't love your children if you don't give to them. You can't love your spouse if you don't give. You can't love Jesus if you don't give. You can't love God if you don't give. Love, in other words, love gives. Love produces giving in our life. The reason why we love giving is love gives. When I'm in love, it's easy to give. Love moves me to give. Yesterday, when I was with a number of the families during our Giving Hope project, so many families asked me, why are you doing this? Why, why, why did your church do this? Why are you guys doing this? Why? Because love gives. Love gives. We think about the sacrifice that you guys make for the freedom that we get to enjoy. It's easy for us to do this. We love doing this. We, we enjoy giving. When we think about what you do, because at the end of the day, what they give for us is far greater than me giving them a toy, than me giving them a present for Christmas, their sacrifice of having to leave their family for months at a time, it's e when I think about what they do for me, it motivates me with love to want to give that because I think about their sacrifice and what they do on our behalf. I love Romans 5.8. It says almost the same thing. It says God demonstrates his own love. God shows us love. God, God exposes his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were not worth it, while we were not worthy, while we did not have our act together, while we were still broken, while we didn't deserve it, when we were in the most unworthy, filthy, undeserving state of our life, when we were in that condition, Christ died for us. He gave his life on the cross, not because we deserved it. He did it when we didn't deserve it. I mean, think about it. Jesus, you know, when they were going to nail the nails in his hand, he didn't say, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. Before you put the nail in, I just need to know, are you going to clean up your act? Because I'm not doing this if you don't change your life. I'm not doing this unless you give your life to me. Like, I'm only doing this. This is conditional for me, and I need to see your response before. No, no. While we didn't deserve it, Christ died for us. He gave the ultimate gift. Not because we appreciated it, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it. He did it because of His love for us. Love causes giving. Love, that's 1 John, we love because God first loved us. One of the reasons why it's really easy for me to be a giver, one of the reasons it's easy for me to live a generous life 
honestly, is because I've never gotten over what Jesus has done for me. I don't know about you, but I've never gotten over the fact that I was on my way to hell, that I was lost, I was hopeless. I had no chance of saving myself. I could never do enough good to earn my way into heaven that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, went to a cross, shed His blood, died for me so that I could be forgiven, so that I could be saved. I've never gotten over what that means. And in light of what Jesus has done for me, it's very, very easy for me to respond through giving because I love him for what he's done. And and love gives. I remember 2015 in our legacy offering as a church. During 2015, our legacy offering went entirely to a refugee camp of, of Christians in Iraq who were displaced because of ISIS. What a lot of people don't realize is a lot of the Christian communities in Iraq, it wasn't Bedouin people living in caves. These are people who lived in neighborhoods just like this. My wife's mother lived over there. Her husband was in the oil industry, and there were communities very similar to this. Doctors, lawyers, people with kids in school, playing sports, and overnight, because of ISIS, they lost everything. They lost their homes, they lost their possessions, they lost their businesses, and overnight they're living in tents, in camps, in the middle of nowhere because of what ISIS did. And so God put it on our heart as a church to help one of the refugee camps with with a medical tent, an educational tent, and different things that we were giving to. And so we did this legacy offering, and I remember driving home, praying about the legacy offering, and God asking me a very specific question. God's saying to me, will you give me what matters most? And to be very honest, if you, if you know me personally, you'll know that I'm not, I'm not really a materialistic person. I value experiences. I value people. Uh, the, the, I don't really value possessions. Like There's really not anything I have that I wouldn't give away because it's just not something I value. But that year, it was my 40th birthday. It was my 10-year wedding anniversary, and it was my five-year anniversary being pastor of this church. And my wife told me that summer, you're going to do something for you. You never do anything for you. You do something for everyone else. Never do anything for yourself. You're going to do something for you. And she took me out and made me. Now, she didn't have to make me that hard because I wanted to, but she took me out and made me get a Harley Davidson. And I love that bike. Like, like it, I enjoyed that bike. Like, that was, it was a lot of fun riding that bike. And I had it all summer and all fall, and I rode it, and I loved it. And at the time, that, that really is what mattered most to me out of any material possession I had. Like, obviously, there are other things that mattered more, but materially, this is what, what was most valuable to me. And God said, will you give me what matters most? Will you give me your bike? And my first reaction, it may sound a little strange because it caught me a little bit off guard. My first reaction when God asked me was, thank you. Thank you. And here's why. I thought to myself, I'm sure you don't ask everybody that. For whatever reason, you trusted me enough to ask me that question, believing that I would actually say yes. I'm sure you don't ask everybody questions like that because you probably know the answer you're going to get ahead of time. I said, absolutely, it's yours, God. I'm glad to give it. And some of you are here. You remember, I brought it in, put it in the front of the stage. We sold it, gave it all in the offering. Well, at the time, that, that, that's what mattered most to me. What really mattered most, though, was a dream I had for years that, that to me was impossible. It was, it, it was not something that was ever going to have, and it was the fact that I wanted another child. We had an eight-year-old boy at the time, and I'd always wanted another child. But 
our first son, it was a very traumatic pregnancy, and my wife just did not want to go through that again. And so she made it very clear years ago, we're never having any more children. That's it. One and done. Don't ever ask. Don't ever bring it up. It's never going to happen. In fact, why don't you go to get the hospital and get it taken care of so it can't happen again? Thank God we never did that. But it, it was just like one of those things where it was like, we're never doing that again. Well, what I didn't realize is when I gave my motorcycle, God began to speak to my wife and tell her, I want you to have another child. Now, she didn't tell me for three months because she had to argue with God about it because she, she didn't believe God at first. She's like, this can't be you, God. And she argued with him. And she kept coming to me and asking me strange questions like, did God say anything to you weird this week? Like, like, I was like, no, what would, he, what would he say to me that was weird? Like, like what did he say to you? No, I can't tell you. I'll, I'll tell you later. And, and so for three months, she, and she finally told me, and now, about a year and a half after I gave the bike, I now have two amazing boys at home. You see, God is able to bless you abundantly. I gave God at the time what mattered most, and the reality is God gave me back what truly matters most. Now look, I know that there are still people who love God, but they're afraid to give. They love God, but they're still a little bit hesitant and so let me give you the third one to wrestle with, because this one really is the key, and it's this. Do I trust God enough to give? This is really what it comes down to. Do I trust God? Do, do I trust that if I let go of this, God's going to take care of me? Because the fear is, if I let go of this, what happens if something goes wrong tomorrow and I really need it back? Or what, what happens if I, you know, like, 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 like I give this to God, and then tomorrow the car breaks down, and then it's like, I really could have used that money. I really shouldn't have given it, and now I regret giving it. The question is, do I really trust God? Joy, am I overjoyed to give? Do I love giving? Do I trust God enough to give? Let me show you the most famous verse in the Bible about trust. Now, if you grew up in church, you very likely memorized this when you were a child. What we, what we, we don't often see, though, is if you keep reading, it's a passage of Scripture that is all connected. And so often we memorize the first verse, but we never get into the second and the third verses, which actually pull it all together. So let me show you the most famous verse in the Bible about trusting God. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't trust your own understanding. Don't lean on your own understanding because your understanding will mess you up sometimes. Your understanding, like, 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 like if you buy into culture, if you buy into popular thought, if you buy into what you think is best, don't trust God. He's, he's a lot smarter than you. He's been around longer than you. His word has been around longer than you. You can build your life on it and it'll never let you down. But you trust your opinion and sometimes it, it doesn't go very well for you. So we trust in the Lord with all of our heart. We don't lean on our own understanding. In all our ways, submit to him, and he'll make your path straight. Can, can I tell you, you want him to do that. Crooked paths are no fun. Crooked paths are painful. Crooked paths hurt. Plain and simple, walking down a crooked path hurts. There's a lot of pain in walking on a crooked path. You want God to make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Again, don't trust your own understanding. Don't, don't, don't do what you think is best. Fear the Lord. Remember, Jesus interprets the word fear as worship. Worship the Lord. Shun evil. This will bring health to your body, nourishment to your bones. Those are good things. Now, now look at this next verse, because this is where people usually don't connect the dots. This next verse is connected to the first verse, trust in the Lord. Honor the Lord with your wealth. 
That's where you've got to learn how to trust God. Because right now, your own understanding is, is saying, no, 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 stop there. Stop there. No, 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 no. I'm going I'm I'm to actually stop now, and, and I'm going to lean on my own understanding because I, I don't want to trust the Lord with my wealth. I work for it. It's mine. It, 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 you know, it, it's, it's hard-earned. That's where I draw the line. But no, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. First fruits all throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, always represents the tithe, the first portion of what we earn, the first portion of all of our, our crops, however we get paid. We honor the Lord with that. Then it says, your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. In other words, God is able to abundantly bless you for every good work that he calls you to do. So the first fruits, biblically speaking, is the tithe. For those of us that have committed our life to Jesus Christ, if we're Christ followers, one of the things that we learn, one of the disciplines of Christianity is tithing. And the reason we tithe is it breaks the power of greed in our life. And when we break the power of greed, it enables us to become generous. It enables us to be overjoyed at giving. It enables us to love to give. But we got to break the power of greed to do it. Malachi puts it like this when it talks about the tithe. In Malachi 3, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. How is it possible for us to steal from God? Let's be honest. Like God's up in heaven. We're down here. How can I steal from God? Well, when I keep something that is his, that doesn't belong to me, it's stealing. Like, like, like if I take something that is not mine, the Bible calls that stealing. But you ask, how are we robbing you? And the, and the answer is in tithes and offerings. You're robbing me in tithes and offerings. There are tithes and there are offerings that are, that are God's. And by keeping them, the Bible says we're robbing. Now, what was actually taking place, you've got to study Malachi chapter 1 to get the context. Because in Malachi 1, it says, when you sacrifice a lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? So what was taking place was people were giving to God things that they didn't want. They were giving to God things they didn't need. They were giving to God things that were broken and didn't work. So instead of giving God the first fruit, instead of giving God their best, they were giving God stuff that they wanted to get rid of. Thank God we did not do that during giving hope. Can you imagine what a disaster yesterday would have been if everybody in our church would have brought in used toys Used toys that have been broken and used and stained and slobbered on. And, and can you imagine what, like nobody would come back the next year if we brought in the stuff we didn't want. Can we say there's a big difference between getting rid of and donating? Some of us need to learn the difference because there's still people donating things that they need to be getting rid of and, and they're different concepts. Well, what's taking place is they're getting rid of stuff they didn't want. It wasn't helping them. It wasn't increasing their bottom line, and they needed to get rid of it anyways, so they called it an offering and gave it to God. And God says, you're not giving me the best. You're not giving me the first fruits. You're giving me stuff that you don't want anyway. And so Malachi 3 goes on to say, you're under a curse. It doesn't say God is cursing them. Please hear this. It does not say God is cursing them. It says you're under a curse. What is being under a curse? Well, when God gets the first, what that means is everything else I have falls under God's supernatural protection and supernatural favor. Anything outside of God's supernatural protection and supernatural favor, you can say it's under a curse because it's just not, it's not protected. There's not God's favor on it. So God is saying, listen, if you'll bring me 
the first, everything else you have will fall under my favor. Everything else you have will fall under my protection. And he says, you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Bring the tithe to my house. Test me. This is an area God says, test. See if it works, says the Lord Almighty. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. And again, here's that, what Paul said in Corinthians, God is able to bless you abundantly, pour out so much blessing that there'll not be enough room to store it. So we give to God, we return to God the first and the best, not the worst and the last. And here's the reason, because when we bring our first and our best, we can trust God to bless the rest. I know that when God gets the first portion of everything I have, I can trust him to protect everything else. I can trust him to bless everything else. Paul says it like this in Romans. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits, remember what Proverbs said? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, what does the word holy mean? Set apart. Set apart. How does the first fruits become holy? I set it apart. I set it apart. If I, if I leave the first fruits with everything else, it's not holy. It's not set apart. I take the first fruits. I set it apart to God. I set it apart from everything else. Then the whole batch becomes holy. So think about it like this. When I set apart the first portion, the tithe to God, that means everything else I have becomes holy. And when it's holy, it has the ability to be blessed. It has the ability to be protected. It's under God's supernatural favor. Let me tell you quickly how this practically works, and then we'll close. We had a mom in our church, military mom in our church, about eight years ago. Her husband was deployed in Afghanistan. He was on a nine-month tour. She had three young kids. They were low-ranking. They struggled to survive. She told me, every single month, I've got to borrow money from my family to feed my kids. Like, like we just don't have enough. So I'm borrowing money to feed my children every month. And she was in our growth track class. We were talking about the Christian discipline of tithing. She says, it just, it, it's not going to work for me. I, I just, we can't do that. And honestly, as a pastor, that's the most difficult position to be in. Because my heart goes out. My, my, my heart is like, God understands but what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to you know, defend Scripture and, and, and teach what the Bible says or, or kind of emotionally go a different direction? And I had to say, listen, I, I'm hurting for you. I understand you're in a difficult position. My job is to help you understand what the Bible says. You've got, I can't tell you what to do. You've got to decide whether you want to do it or not. You've got to decide whether you want to believe it or not. But here's the truth. If you can't afford to tithe, you can't afford not to tithe. Because tithing is what changes the situation. I said, you're going to have to trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Because right now, your understanding says this isn't going to work. Your understanding says it'll never happen. You have to trust the Lord that God is able. She came back to me four months later. She says, you're not going to believe it. I said, what happened? She said, the last four months, it makes no sense. We began to trust the Lord with the first fruits. We, we began to tithe. Makes absolutely no sense. Nothing has changed but it's been the first four months in over a year we have not had to borrow money from our family to feed our children. 
She says it makes no sense at all. We were living off of 100% of our income. We had to borrow money every single month to feed the kids. Now we're living off of 90%. 90% is actually doing more than 100% was. Trust in the Lord. Lean not in your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will direct your path. This is what the Christmas story is all about. The wise men, they were overjoyed to give. Am I overjoyed because God loves a cheerful giver? Am I overjoyed at the opportunity of tithing? Am I overjoyed every time an offering comes around, a legacy offering? Am I overjoyed about serving at Giving Hope, going down to Mexico and serving children? Am I overjoyed at being a part of the foster care? Am I overjoyed about giving to see a brand new children and youth building take place to honor the kids of our community? Am I overjoyed? Do I love giving? Because love gives. You cannot love without giving. And then finally, do I trust God enough to give? Because when you really think about it, God gave his first and his best to us. And so the the truth is the greatest gift you can give God on Christmas is nothing you own. The greatest gift that you can give God this Christmas is you. Think about it. Jesus didn't die for your money. He died for you. Jesus didn't die for your possessions. He died for you. The greatest thing you can give God in return is all of you to all of him. We titled the series, Come to Worship. Let me show you this as an act of worship. Paul says in Romans 12, the last verse, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of what God gave to us, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer all of your talent. Offer all of your time. Offer all of your energy. Offer everything you have and everything you are as a living sacrifice. This is holy and pleasing to God. This is how you set apart your life. And it's holy and pleasing. This is your true and your proper worship. We've come to worship Him this Christmas. What greater way to worship Him this Christmas than to offer your body? Offer everything you are, everything you, 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 every, everything you have. God, I'm yours. You're king. What, it, what does it really mean to be a Christian? What does it really mean to follow Jesus? It, it simply means you make him the Lord of your life. He's king. You're not. And you have an opportunity today to surrender and submit your life to him. What does that look like? That means, and and I want you to think about this clearly, because I don't think we we really think about what Christianity truly is sometimes. I think we go through the motions, but we really don't think, what what does it mean to be a Christian? You invite Jesus to be Lord. What What does that practically look like? You give God permission to come into your life, turn everything upside down, rearrange all of your priorities, rearrange all of your values to reflect he's number one. That's what it means to follow him. Have you ever come to a point in your life where you've invited Jesus? Jesus, I want you to take hold of all of my priorities. Everything I value, everything that's important to me, I want you to rearrange everything in my life, all of my time, all of my energy, all of my talent, all of my possessions, all of my money. I want you to rearrange everything in my life to reflect your number one. Have you ever gotten to the point where you've made him Lord? Because the truth is, God doesn't sell fire insurance. I know none of us want to go to hell. 
Come on, we don't want to go to hell, right? So it's like, I'll buy fire insurance. Just tell me what the bare minimum I have to do is just to make it to heaven. Like, just, just give me the prayer to pray. Let me just say the prayer so that I can go on with my life. No, no, no. He doesn't sell fire insurance. Jesus today is offering you to come to him and surrender your life. Submit it all. Put him in charge. Say, you're Lord. You're king. I'm not. And I will rearrange all of my priorities to reflect your number one. That's the offer today. I know that's not the easy offer. I know you're probably going to have to think about it a little bit. And I, I would encourage you to think about it. Because it, it's a, he's asking for it all. Like, man, he's asking for a lot. Yeah, he is. He is. He's asking for a lot. He's asking for everything, in fact. That's the offer. Why? Because he gave you everything. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to give you everything I have on the cross so that you can give me a small part of your life back. <laughs> Let's be honest. Does that make any sense to you? Like, why would we be celebrating Christmas if all God wanted was a small part of our life? Like, I'll give you an hour a week on Sunday. I'll give you a little bit here or there. I'll give you kind of my lame and my diseased animals because I'm really not going to miss them and they're not really helping me anyways. Or do we make him Lord? Would you close your eyes with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, I know that this has been a strong challenge. But this Christmas, we have come to worship you and we're going to make it all about you, that this is your day, not ours. And we're going to celebrate you and we're going to enjoy our family in the process and we're going to enjoy the festivity in the process, but it is all about you and we live our life for you. We have come to worship you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to close with one song. During that song, our prayer team will be available. If, if you're here today and you need to make that decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life, King of your life, I would encourage you to come talk to somebody on our prayer team. If you're not comfortable doing it in here, find somebody on our team outside. Anybody wearing the lanyards, anyone on our dream team, we'd love to pray with you today about what it looks like to take that step and live for Jesus, to give him our life, to surrender to him. We'd love to pray with you today about that. If you're here, there's anything else going on in your life, our team would love to pray with you. Let's sing this last song and then we'll be dismissed.